words of our Lord. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley, the little creek there. On the other side of that creek was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, knew the place because Jesus often met there. Uh, Jesus often met there with Judas and his other disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. It's pretty late at night at this point. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. Jesus initiates, and he says, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, or I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, Jesus asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus said, I told you, I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him up. They brought him first to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it's going to be best if, we ki- if, if one man died for all the people. It was kind of his strategy to get rid of Jesus and end this thing. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus after he was taken away. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Down in verse 25, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it again, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Dawn was there. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, every week I feel it. I imagine my friends feel it too. What we do in these uh, 30 minutes together is weak. This is not rhetoric. This is not inspiration. This is not trying to find the right phrases to inspire my friends sitting in the chairs. Our only hope is that you will do what you say you do that you'll attend these weak words that come out of my mouth and into their ears, that you, will, that you will minister through this weakness. Through these very natural, ordinary things, you will do extraordinary, eternal, supernatural things. You're my only hope. 
and you're my friend's only hope right now. So we ask for you to be Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, a 30-year-old girl named Justine Seiko was at the airport up in LaGuardia, and um, she had a few hours to kill. And uh, she wasn't a big Twitter person. She only had 170 followers. She wasn't like some known blue check person who had a big following, but she's just sending out some sarcastic observations of other passengers in the terminal and just some other little witty things. The last tweet that she wrote before she boarded a plane for Cape Town, South Africa, that was an 11-hour flight, the last tweet that she hit send on said this, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. So she hits send, the plane pushes back, airplane mode, and she settles in for an 11-hour flight, takes her Ambien, flies, half a day later, lands in Cape Town, and turns her phone back on. Imagine the plane stopping and that little bell tone coming on when seatbelts come undone and everyone turns their phone on and ding, ding, ding. She was confused by the text that she got because it was from a high school friend she hadn't talked to in years, and the high school friend said simply, I'm so sorry for what they're doing to you. She's like, what? And uh, by the time she'd finished reading the text, uh, her Twitter app had caught up with the signal, and just hundreds of notifications start pouring in to her phone. Um, the tweet, even back then, I think around 2015 when she sent this, was just as cringy and heartless and biting then as it is now, and everyone else thought so too. In the span of the 11 hours she was on the flight, I kid you not, her name became the top global trending thing on Twitter. Uh, people started tweeting her employer. They found out where she worked. They said, how could you employ such a heartless, thoughtless bigot like Justine Seiko, who would say something like this, so racist? So the company in that 11-hour span had time to gather the leadership together and put out a formal press release that said, we're outraged by the words that our employee has said, she is unreachable on an international flight at the moment, but as soon as we are able to reach her, she will be terminated and separate ways with the company. Other volunteer organizations that people found out she had helped with or been a part of had denounced her and disassociated with her by the time that she landed. She had friends, family texting her just uh, the most acidic things into her phone and under that tweet, because of what she had written. She had landed into a hellstorm. Uh, she would say that her life ended that day and a new one had to begin because the old one was just torched and burned down completely. The New York Times, which is where I found out about this story, summed up her story uh, this way in the headline, how one stupid tweet blew up Justine Seiko's life. Now, I don't share the story to kind of launch into some rant about uh, the evil of the darkness of the spirit her tweet came from. And I don't do it to launch into something about the evil that's behind cancel culture. The reason I share the story is because I think it underlines 
a reality that our society that for a long time has been resistant to the idea of judgment and giving an account and having a moment of reckoning where you answer for what you did, our society in weird places is coming full circle back to a place where that's an easier thing for us to believe because it happens all the time now. There's a, there's a growing sense now among us that um, everything will come back to us, that our past will catch up to us, uh, even for little things like a, a seemingly harmless tweet that in your estimation might not mean anything, it's you kind of hit sin with a chuckle. There's a sense that uh, that's all preserved, and one day in some form or another, we're going to have to answer for it. We saw it last week as federal marshals go across cities all across the country knocking on doors, taking people out in handcuffs to federal prison for what they did in D.C. We've seen it with athletes, politicians, justices, presidents, CEOs, celebrities, where what they did back in the 70s or what they said in the 90s or what they tweeted 10 years ago has all been brought back up and they're all answering for it now. There's a day of reckoning. There's a way in which we have to answer for what we've done and what we've not done. We've got to answer the question, where were you when it mattered? Where was your voice when it was needed? Or why did you say that? And we have this sense. What I read a moment ago is John's description of Jesus' day of reckoning, where his world is collapsing all around him, everything. For Justine Seiko, for the other people I've mentioned, it was a total collapse of their world, their job, their employment, their friends, their family, their reputation. For Jesus, what, in what I just read, there's a total collapse of everything, of everything around him. All of his friends, all of his disciples, uh, all of his people, the Jews, Judaism itself, uh, the, the systems and the structures, the government, the high priests, the Roman government, the authorities. Even we'll see next week an abandonment and a sense of God the Father himself as Jesus is all alone. His world is collapsing. He has landed. Actually, I should say he has walked himself right into a hellstorm, right into this day of reckoning. And uh, I should say this, I always want to point this out, we pointed out several times in, in, in these series, in this series in John, but um, we should say this up front, this is a real day of reckoning, it's not a metaphorical, a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, I mean, this was a Thursday night, just on the eve of the Jewish holiday of Passover. If newspapers existed at the time, you could have gone back and read about this. We're reading about it in the scriptures. This was a real event, just as real as Justine Seiko's day that that went down. John records names and details and places, weird stuff, that historians include in their accounts, but fiction writers never include in theirs. Why tell us, unless this happened, the way it happened, that Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the right ear of a little servant boy of a random Jewish official, and he gives us his name, Malchus. Who does that? John must have assumed that all of his audience knew this Malchus and could go look at his ear, could go see him, perhaps the scar. John is appealing to eyewitness testimony, and he records it just the way all of us record eyewitness testimony of things that really happened. Now, that's important because what I'm reading is what Christians believe is the crux 
which is an ironic word, the cross, the crux, the hinge, the pivot point, the crescendo, the climax, Christians believe that what happened in this garden and what happened the day off is the center point of all of Christianity. Not five pillars of things you should do to be a better person or more devout believer. Not a moral call. Not a religious book that you're supposed to read and master. Uh, Not introspection to be a better person, but the crux, the center point of Christianity, of the gospel, of the Bible, is this day. It matters if this is real eyewitness history. Because, friends, if it is, it's harder to just dismiss it and ignore it as, oh, whatever. I'm not really into, you know, Santa Claus kind of stuff. Uh, This has to be dealt with. Just, Just like yesterday has to be dealt with and whatever happened in your life. This has to be dealt with. John records this as what it is, a real historic event that has eternal implications in all of us. So this is a real day reckoning for Jesus Christ, and boy was it ever a reckoning for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This 33-year-old Jewish man, six years younger than I am, as he is sitting in this garden, which was a familiar place. He must have had some wealthy friend who let him and his disciples use this as kind of their quiet getaway from from the temple, which would have been a 10-minute walk away. It's one of the, I don't know if you have a place like that on campus, it's just chock full of memories. Maybe it's a bench that you met, your first date, you went there and sat, and every time you pass that bench, memories just flood out, or a field that you you and your buddies always used to hang out on, or North Campus, and you walk past it and everything comes out. This garden was that for Jesus Christ. And of all places, this is where he was stabbed in the back, repeatedly. John says a detachment of soldiers accompanied Judas. A detachment, the Greek word cohort that uh, is underneath that word detachment, meant 500. Platoon, company, brigade. This meant 500 soldiers, Roman soldiers. What? We're not talking about like Judas and three or four other dudes. This is like a brigade. They knew, they remember a, a week prior Jesus coming into Jerusalem and all the people coming out and saying, This is the king. This is our leader. Boy, how, did, how, how fast did his fortunes fall. They were prepared for a riot, a revolution. They were prepared for Jesus and these 11 followers remaining to, to put up a fight for the people to hear about it, for the people to come out and fight. But Jesus' response eliminates any potential for that happening there. They're trying to do a show of force, too. This is what tyrants always do, right? pull out the SWAT team trucks and the soldiers and the batons and the guns. So they came with weapons and they came in numbers and they came in force. The creatures approaching their creator to kill him. And this is how they come in the cover of night because they were too cowardly to do it during the day where all the people would have seen it. This is how that night went down. Uh, If you want to know what kind of people these troops are and the temple police and the Pharisees, imagine, uh, you know, one of those scenarios you've heard about maybe a local Mexican police force that's been corrupted by the cartel and every single officer that wears the badge is on the pay. He's on the payroll of the cartel and they do the bidding of the cartel. They wear the badge, they've taken the oath, but none of it means a bit of difference. That's these people. 
The cartel-corrupted police force has shown up with the SWAT team trucks on Jesus' lawn, and they're on the bullhorn, and the lasers are on his chest, and they say, get out here. You're coming with us. Why are they doing this? From their perspective, um, they are trying to figure out how do we snuff this movement, this revolution, this guy, how do we snuff him out? How do we get him out of the party? He's ruining it. How do we do away with him? This was their solution. Uh, this was their solution. But John is very careful to let us know that um, this isn't Jesus' day of, uh, of a reckoning, um, his judgment day, because Jesus is worthy of any judgment. We'll pick this up in more details next week with that text, but Several times through this account, John's going to go out of his way to, to, to quote, not Christians, not believers, not disciples, but kind of godless Roman authorities, government officials who say, why are y'all bringing this guy to trial? He didn't do anything wrong. And they'll say, where are your witnesses? And they'll say, what charges? Are you serious? You want to kill a man for that? Jesus, John is very clear. Scripture is very clear to give you confidence that Jesus isn't being arrested and dragged to the station because Jesus did a dadgum thing wrong. He's never done a thing wrong, and he's always done everything right. John is clear to absolve Jesus of any guilt in this account, so we can't think that this is Jesus' day of reckoning because Jesus tweeted out a thoughtless tweet, or Jesus had left a trail of destruction and tears and hurt and an abuse of power or anything else. Jesus has nothing to answer for. He's innocent. John is also careful to point out uh, in verse 4, Jesus is in every bit control of this situation. You can bring the tanks. You can bring the body armor. You can point the guns at me. I'm the one calling every single shot in this situation. Verse 4, John says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. Look at how he leads Look at how your Savior is in control of every detail. Look at how he initiates the conversation. Look at how he's the one asking the questions. He is setting the stage for the work that he knows he must do for you. This is no man shamefully being dragged off against his will. This is a man who willed to be in this jam, in this predicament, to free his people. So John wants you to know that he's innocent, and John wants you to know that he chose this for himself. So then why is Jesus in this dangerous moment? Imagine a split screen. If this were a movie, imagine a split screen. On one side of the screen, you see all of the human explanations for why this is happening. Because of political machinations, because of uh, a power struggle, because of people who wanted to protect their name and their status and their power, and they didn't want him to be here. Because Judas was greedy and wanted money. Because he disagreed with Jesus' agenda. That's the, the left side of the screen, the human side, the temporal explanation of how did the Son of God get crucified? But this side of the screen is the divine explanation of why this night went down the way it did and the days that would follow why this day of reckoning here because they trumped up charges with jesus here because the messiah has finally come the rescuer god in the flesh has come and this is the valley of the shadow of death this is the valley of death that god himself must walk through that you would never have to walk through the valley of death and condemnation and judgment 
On the other side of the screen, we see that this isn't just Jesus' day of judgment. It's your day of judgment, too. It's your day of reckoning, too. This is the night that you began to have to answer for all the things you've done and not done. This is the night that Ben was dragged into the light and the authorities and the crowds and God himself saw me for what I was and condemned me. Jesus knows that this moment is as much about you as it is about him. Verse four, he asks at the end of that verse to the, to the 500 troops, to the leader, to Judas, who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And verse seven, again, he says, who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus. And Jesus says, in verse seven, I told you that I am. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And in Greek, that phrase, let them go, is the same word for forgive them. So Jesus is saying, who is it are you looking, who have you come to reckon with? Who have you come to judge? Who have you come to condemn? <laughs> Just the way he said to the woman caught in adultery, who is it that condemns you? Who is it that you've come to judge? Do you see your shepherd step in between the gun and you, and now the laser's on his chest? Jesus says, if your business is with me, don't bother them. Forgive them. You take me in. And so that's just what they do. They bind him up like a lamb, and they drag God away to begin persecuting him. Jesus is substituting himself here. You're going to hear that word a lot if you read the Bible very much. You hear it preached on very much. Jesus is offering himself as a stand-in for his people, a substitute. Uh, he's innocent, didn't deserve a day of reckoning. You and I are not, do deserve a day of reckoning, do have things to answer for, do have things to pay for, rights to wrong. Um, Jesus is substituting himself in our place, and he's now the one answering on your behalf. He's the one receiving the blows you and I deserve. Um, this is the first time I've ever done this. I don't know if there's any water heater fans out there. Maybe some of you engineers will appreciate this. Such a weird illustration. I was installing a water heater recently, and I had to read the little manual of how to do it. And um, if you have ever installed a water heater, maybe someone on the live stream, I got a plumber out there, this is for you. Uh, there are two big old metal rods in the middle of your water heater. Did you know that? They're called anodes. Do you know why those big old metal rods are in the middle of your water heater? Um, they'll, they'll refer to it in the manual as sacrificial rods. If you just have a big old metal tank full of water sitting in your house for year after year, guess what? After about a month, that thing rusts through and 60 gallons of water ends up on your kitchen floor. So they started engineering these two big metal rods, these sacrificial rods, because they're made of magnesium and zinc, these metals that attract the impurities, the minerals, the corrosive materials in tap water. It draws it all to itself. And all the impurities and all the corrosion and everything that eats away sticks to the rods. 
and not to the metal walls of the tank. So the tank survives and the rods go bad. And every now and then you gotta take them out, throw them away and replace them. That's substitution. That is Jesus stepping into your place in a way that all the impurity, all the junk, all the condemnation, all the corrosion, all the death, all the decay sticks to him that it doesn't destroy his people. If you're not a plumber and want a more personal illustration, Stephen Sykes is an author that said it this way, sacrifice is life-giving in the sense of total commitment. The offering of one's entire being. Imagine a person being totally committed to your best interests, devoted to seeing you flourish, fighting for you against all enemies, determined to eliminate everything destructive from your life, attentive to every detail of who you are, never thinking of himself at all, but only of you. That is Jesus in relation to us all, sacrificial in his life, sacrificial in his death. This isn't just Jesus's day of reckoning. He has he has bound together your day of reckoning and made it his day of reckoning because he has substituted himself for where you and I belonged. That's why he's accused, judged, punished, and we're cleansed. Some of us might be thinking, I'm sure some of us are thinking, good night. Why, the com- why does this have to be so complicated? Um, judgment, reckoning? I mean, like, you might think of your life as kind of the way that lady thought about her tweet. It's not that big of a deal. Don't kind of get all up in a fluster about it. And you're wondering why all this stuff? Why give an account? Why answer? Why a day of reckoning, a day of judgment? And the reason we think like that, if you think like that, is we don't really know what sin is. We minimize it. We, we tend to think of sin or evil as an action. Like, oops, I tripped up again. Um, and I, uh, you know, kind of threw my roommate under the bus around those other girls so that she would look a little worse, I'd look a little better. Or um, <clears throat> my roommate left town, I was all alone in the apartment, and I got on the internet and I looked at stuff I knew I shouldn't have looked at. We think of it as an incident, an action, uh, an instance. I lost my temper, I said something I shouldn't have. Uh, but that's not the way the Bible talks about sin. Not these isolated little episodes that were kind of like stepping in gum, like, I did it again. The Bible talks about sin as an enslaving, cosmic, which means much bigger than any of us, power. The writer of Genesis personifies sin as a lion that's waiting to eat you for lunch. Every moment of every day, you're the meal. I'm the meal. The Bible talks about sin not as something that you and I are in the driver's seat of and we can modulate it, manage it, control it, hit the gas pedal, hit the brake, be like, whoop, that's too far, I'm going to back off. The way the Bible describes sin is something, it's in the driver's seat, you're gagged, bound, handcuffed in the trunk. It calls all the shots. It's the dominant power, a cosmic force, an evil enemy, not an individual enemy, uh, a brigade, a battalion set up against us, an enslaving power that deludes us. Sin isn't just this thing that I fall into. Sin's the thing that always makes me want it and keep wanting it. Sin's the thing that frustrates even our best intentions and best desires. Sin's the thing that makes racist people think that they're not that bad of people. 
because it wasn't that bad. Uh, Sin's the thing that pulls the wool over our eyes. Sin's the thing that makes us angry at other people's failures, but never our own. It's a cosmic force, and it has us in its grips. And Jesus has either delivered you from it through what we're reading right now, or he's not. And if you've been delivered from it, you're free from this power, even though its presence is still here. And if you haven't been delivered from it, the Bible says it dominates you. You're kicking against the goads. It's a, it's a losing enterprise to try to fight it. The Bible never calls non-Christians to fight sin and be moral. The Bible says you're dead in sin. You can't fight. You can't resist. Look to Jesus, who's the conqueror of cosmic sin. Fleming Rutledge, a lady who wrote a brilliant book you're going to hear a lot about her next week, said to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something very much more, than, very much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. It means to be on the other side of an impassable barrier of exclusion from God's heavenly banquet. It means to be hopelessly trapped inside of one's own worst self, miserably aware of the chasm between the way we are and the way God intends us to be. It means the continuation of the reign of greed, cruelty, rapacity, and violence throughout the world. Just before I, God gave me eyes to see and kind of made me a Christian um, towards the end of my, my senior uh, year of college, I started to feel this sense of like, I can't stop this stuff. Like the, the sins that I had given myself over to that I always thought I was in control of, it's like a dimmer switch. I'm the one calling kind of, kind of the shots. I finally realized I can't control this. I want to do these things. I can't stop. I know I shouldn't do it. I feel bad about it. I don't know what to do. I feel trapped, out of control. How did I get this far? How did I ever get here? All of us think like that in different areas of our lives. It's what Fleming Rutledge said. It's what scripture said. It's what Jesus went to the cross to deliver us from. That power, that lion, that force, that we're like a little ant next to its towering presence. Jesus is a cosmic, supernatural savior for people who've been defeated by a cosmic enemy called sin, a rebellion. When you begin to recognize sin as a big, a capital S kind of thing, not this little thing that sometimes I do or don't do, but this big old force, this power, this thing that explains why everything is wrong or broken some way or another, you'll begin to long for and love and savior and believe in a supernatural capital S savior. When you think sin is just a little uh, momentary indiscretion, um, you'll say you're a Christian, you might be a Christian, but your Christian life will look like a ton of to-do items. I've got to go repent to undo this little thing that I did. I've got to go put some weights over here because this is kind of weighted down over here. I've got to do a good thing to make up for the bad thing. It's just busy work. It's a hamster wheel of you doing stuff to try to undo little things you think you did. But when you realize the gravity, the weight, the paralysis, the delusion, that the odds are infinitely stacked against you, guess who you'll start longing for? the Jesus described in the Bible. Otherwise, you won't, you won't understand any of this. This is just noise. It never makes sense to you if you think of it as a little thing that you just need a little bit of help to fix versus God himself. You don't need a pastor. 
or a counselor or a therapist or a doctor. You needed God. What? God in the flesh, dying, taking to himself all that was in you that he might give you all that's in him. How bad must the situation be if a therapist, a counselor, a doctor, a pastor, a parent, a best friend can't touch that stuff, but it has to be God himself, the pure one. That makes sense of what I'm reading in this passage and what we talk about next week. Jesus said, Peter pulls out his sword and he starts swinging it around like a little kid with a lightsaber. And Jesus says, Peter, in a sense, do you understand the enemy we're facing? You swing a sword thinking that you're going to accomplish my mission. The only way my mission is accomplished is me drinking a cup. Not you swinging a sword. Not you saying some prayer of repentance. Not you doing some formula or spiritual discipline. That's our little swinging of our swords. We pull these things out. They're not bad in themselves, but we swing them around thinking that we are saving ourselves. Jesus says, Peter, put it away. You brought a knife to a gunfight. The only way you get out of this garden alive, Peter, and my disciples, is when I drink the cup of the wrath of God because he is just and good and holy and demands a reckoning and accounting for every human being he's ever made. Peter misunderstood Jesus' mission. Peter misunderstood what sin really is. Peter brought a sword to a fight that only a savior drinking the cup of wrath could do. This cup of wrath is talked about throughout the Bible. Psalm 75 talks about it. The author there says, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and the Lord pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the last dregs. And the odd thing here is that it's not God's enemies who are drinking that cup of wrath and retribution. It's God's son, Jesus, who's drinking it. Anselm of Canterbury got it right, what Peter and all often us get wrong. He said, only God can supply the remedy for sin. No amount of religious effort on our part can affect a significant change. Deliverance and atonement must come from outside our sphere of influence, for we are powerless to save ourselves from sin's sphere of power. So friends, let me ask you, are the things that you're doing in your life as a Christian trying to fight the battle yourself? Or are the things that you're doing in your life as a Christian, the way that you pray, the way that you battle temptation, the way that you pursue community, Is it actually evidence of you relying on Jesus who fights the battles for you? Do you come to RUF to be reminded of this Savior? Do you get together with your friends because you keep forgetting that it is Jesus who fights this battle? Yes, it's an enemy I have no business fighting, but he fought this enemy and conquered this enemy because he drank the cup. He substituted himself. He sacrificed himself for me. Are you trying to be Jesus? I think Peter was trying to be Jesus. I think that's why he followed Jesus. Peter never should have followed Jesus. Jesus told Peter, you can't go where I'm going. It's the dad saying to the kids, stay home, go inside, lock the doors. Dad is going to deal with this. And Peter chases after Jesus, thinking that he can do something to fix the situation. And when he begins to realize this Jesus is something fundamentally, someone fundamentally different than what I thought, his agenda is different, 
his mission is different. I think Peter denies him not out of cowardice. A man willing to pull out a sword and strike an official in front of 500 armed people is not a coward. I think Peter denied Jesus because he was disillusioned. And he said, I don't, I don't get your kingdom. I don't get your mission. Like, I understand a kingdom where my little swing of my sword around is what it's all about. I don't understand a kingdom where God, the man I believe is God, has to come and die and be weak and suffer what only I deserve. Friends, we pick this up next week as we get into the actual tip of the spear, the climax of Jesus going to the cross and dying on the cross. But I leave you with these questions of do you see your Savior fighting an enemy on your behalf that you could never lift a finger against and successfully conquering that enemy, freeing you and delivering you from it? Or have you always thought that Christianity is God asking you to get into the ring and somehow beat Mike Tyson? He has come to deliver you, accomplish your salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, we need this. I know what it's like to swing my little sword around and think that, that that's what you're asking me to do. You asked us to stay home on the night you won our deliverance and our freedom and our salvation, to lock the door and to watch you do the work. Would you help us watch you do the work? That we would rest in you. That our prayers would be prayers of gratitude for what you've done that our fighting against temptation would be knowing that we fight a defeated enemy, one that you protect us from. We pray this in your name. Amen.